Well, let's pray. Let's pray for energy. Let's pray for God's uh, word to be proclaimed this morning. Lord God, again, we uh, thank you for this time that we get to gather together to proclaim your word. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would speak to each and every heart here this morning. As, Lord, I uh, proclaim your word and read your word. Pray that, Lord God, that you would glorify yourself through the teaching this morning, that you would edify the church. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 18. We're going to close out this chapter. And the title of this morning's message is Not of This World. Uh, there's no doubt you saw what happened last Sunday at a church in Texas. Really horrific. And you think about, you know, in a church. Lord, you know, you may even think, Lord, where are you? How can that happen to your people? For me, it reminded me, one, that this is not our home. And I think in this morning's message, I really hope that you will see that Jesus reiterates that this is not our home. And if this isn't our home, then what are we to expect here on this earth? Again, I pray that I'll be able to show you what God expects from us as we look through his word this morning and find comfort and hope even in this world. You know, I was thinking as the song we were singing and calling Jesus our king. And in the text that we're going to read, the people don't want Jesus as their king. They want him to go away. And I was thinking of it, but we as believers, we you think about it, we do want our Lord to be king. And we want him to be king of this world right here that we live in. And so many things that we want to happen. But again, we're reminded even in this text that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And I pray that as I teach this morning, I help you understand and really cope with the evil in our world and look forward to the kingdom that comes, that is to come for sure. So let's read the text, and as always, then I'll come back and, and we'll talk about different things that are going on. And hopefully, depending on time, I may get to the application. I was telling the media, uh, Nicole, this morning, that, hey, I may not even get to all those notes. We may have a part two, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, so let's read, starting in verse uh, 28. And so just, uh, just as a, uh, a background real quick, so you know what's going on. So Jesus' trial has begun. Uh, and it began really with Annas, which we studied last week. And John doesn't record what happens in the next trial with Caiaphas. He just kind of picks up and goes on to the next trial with Herod, or excuse me, with Pilate, which is what we're going to see. And just as a, a little background, so in the uh, so Caiaphas and the religious leaders have found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, and they found him guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah sent from God, and as we've been studying and know, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And they have decreed that he is worthy of death. And so they're bringing him straight to Pilate because the Jews at this time were not allowed to put anybody to death, as we'll, we'll talk about in a few moments. So that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have de delivered him to you. 
So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your laws. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And so there we have the uh, account of the trial before Pilate that the Jews brought Jesus to. And as I said, they, John skips the uh, recording of Caiaphas's trial. But again, he's brought to Pilate for a reason, because the Jews again have already condemned Jesus as a blasphemer and worthy of of death. And so they lead Jesus to Pilate and Pilate says to them, go back now to the text in verse 29. He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? So they simply state in verse 30, he's an evildoer. He's evil. Just kill him. Be done with him. There again, their response implies that they've already judged him worthy of death. And Pilate responds to them, He says, you guys judge him yourself. Pilate is in need of more evidence than this. He's an evildoer. Now, the other Gospels do record that they give him a little more information, but John does not. And the Jews say this to him, as I've just read a few minutes ago, that they're not worthy. I mean, they're not allowed to put anybody to death. And that's why they brought him to Pilate. And Pilate knows that. He knows that they're not allowed to put him to death. But Pilate is a... You're kind of like puffing up his ego in a, in a way, saying, you put him to death. They're like, no, we can't. He's like, oh, yeah, wait. You guys don't have the power to do that, do you? But I do. And I can put him to death. So Pilate will now talk to Jesus himself. He's done with the, the Jewish, relig- Jewish religious leaders at the moment. And if you look at verse 33, It says, Pilate enters again into the praetorium and summons Jesus and says to him, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? This is what he's been hearing, right? And in Luke chapter 23, where where Caiaphas' trial is presented, and the Jews are presented a little bit more in the trial of Pilate, where they actually say, he says he's a king. And so he asks him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus replies in typical Jesus fashion with a question, you know, to get a little bit more out of Pilate. 
And I think it's because Jesus is more concerned with Pilate's salvation and asking him, Do you, who told you that I'm the king? Do you say this on your own or did somebody tell you this? You know, it's kind of like people of the day, like they say Jesus is Lord, but do you believe Jesus is Lord or did somebody tell you that Jesus was Lord? I think it's just a little insight into Jesus' love even for Pilate. Again, saying, you say this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And look at verse 35 to see Pilate's response here. Maybe gets a little offended. Maybe Jesus was digging a little too deep. And he says, I am not a Jew, am I? Like, hey, I don't really care if you're a king or not. Who knows? We're not told why he says that. But he goes on to says, your own nation, the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? He wants to know, what have you done? It's almost as if Pilate, and we know this, is just trying to wash his hands of the whole situation and get Jesus out of there. So he wants to know what he's done. And Jesus answers Pilate in verse 36. And look at what he says to him. Jesus answers My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So what is Jesus talking about here? We'll spend a little time here this morning. He's saying again, what does he mean by saying my kingdom is not of this world? Isn't God, Jesus, king of the world, king of the universe? How is it that he can say that my kingdom is not of this world? And he shows us that it's not this isn't his kingdom, because as he says, if it was my kingdom, my servants would fight for me. And you think of the servant that always tried to fight for Jesus. Peter did. Remember when Peter tried to stop Jesus saying, you're not going to be handed over to the Jews. I'm not going to let you die. And what does he tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. No, this is what I came for to die. And then again, as we saw a few weeks ago, when he was in the garden and Peter pulled out his sword to try to prevent people from taking Jesus to the to his death and specifically to be arrested. Jesus tells him, Peter, put away your sword. Again, Jesus is telling us and obviously here in the Gospel of John, this is not his kingdom. His kingdom is different. Matter of fact, he says, my kingdom is not of this realm. And he's in a way assuring Pilate, hey, Pilate, you don't have to worry about it. I'm not here to take over Rome. Jesus' kingdom is not political. Jesus' kingdom is not even derived. Jesus doesn't derive his power like political kings do. It's totally different. That's what he's trying to tell him. It's much greater than this, you know, the territory of Rome. It's much greater than the continent of, of Europe and Asia. It is global. Jesus is the king of the heavenly world. He's king of the new heavens of the new earth, which have yet to come. And Jesus is king of all people who believe, right? Jesus' kingdom surpasses geography, surpasses nationality, and it even surpasses time. Pilate is just king or governor, specific of that small region at that time, for a short amount of his his life. But think about it. Jesus has been king from the beginning of time for all eternity. 
and for all people who have ever lived and ever will live who are his. Now, obviously, he's not understanding it at that time, but that's why Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It is totally different than what you are thinking about. And as I said at the beginning of my sermon, sometimes even for Christians, we think Jesus should just be king of my world right here and right now. And unfortunately, some pastors preach that, that Jesus is going to give you health, wealth, and, and all kinds of things. And that's the king that, G, that, the, that we want as believers sometimes. But Jesus said, no, my kingdom is greater than that. And it far surpasses your expectations and this small little vision that you have of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't bring health and he can't bring wealth. I mean, I pray for my family's safety every day. And again, even going back to what happened last Sunday, there's no doubt that people were praying for the health of that congregation before that horrific thing happened to them. Does that mean Jesus is not king because bad things happen to even believers? No. Jesus' kingdom means a lot more than that. Again, it's, it's greater than a political thing. It's greater than geography, greater than nationality, and greater, greater than time itself. So with that said, and obviously Pilate didn't understand all that, but going back to verse 37 now, or going to verse 37, Pilate's just trying to make it simple. He's like, so then you are a king in verse 37. Is that what you're telling me? You are a king? And Jesus answered, you have you say correctly. So finally, he gives Pilate what he wants. Yes, I'm a king. And he says specifically, for this, I have been born to be king. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus acknowledges the truth of Pilate's statement that he's a king. Yes, I'm a king. And again, Pilate doesn't fully understand And he says, yes, I'm a king, and that's why I came, to proclaim my kingdom to all people. And think about it. Doesn't Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God? That's what he's come to do. Other gospels tell us that. He's come to proclaim the kingdom of God, and that's what he says. That's why I was born. That's why I've come into this world, to testify of this truth, that Jesus is the king of all the universe. Again, greater than this political realm that Pilate has. And he says, everyone who hears that truth of the kingdom of God, hears his voice. Those are the true believers. Remember earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, those who hear his voice are truly his sheep. And those who don't are not his sheep. And Pilate proves that he's not his sheep by the statement in verse 38. That he doesn't hear what Jesus is truly saying because he says that famous statement, What is truth? And we're not told that Jesus continues to elucidate that for him. As a matter of fact, we're drawn to a conclusion now in the rest of this chapter in these last two verses. Look with me again at verse 38. It says, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault with him. The conclusion in Pilate's mind was, hey, there's I don't know why you guys are bringing him to me. I pretty much clear Jesus, you know, he's done nothing wrong. He's convinced that he's not guilty and he's trying to get rid of him. Yet the Jews, even though they cannot convince Pilate of this, they urge him to crucify him. Let's read on. Verse 39. 
Pilate says, but you have a custom that I release someone to you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Again, he's trying to get rid of them. Just release them. Get rid of this whole entire situation. And so they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. So they want an exchange. Hey, give us Barabbas, a robber, we're told here in verse 40. And you take Jesus, the innocent, because he's been proven innocent. Right? There's nothing guilty of him. So instead, the innocent Lord will take the place of a convicted lawbreaker. Do you see that? He's, Jesus, is, his life is being exchanged for someone who's worthy of death. It reminds me of what John said early on. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's almost symbolic here what's happening. A man who deserves death is being let go free. And who's taking his place? Jesus Christ. If you think of that, that's true for each and every person today. Jesus is exchanging his innocent life for our guilty life. Each and every one of us in this room this morning are deserving of God's wrath, deserving of God's condemnation because we have broken his laws. But Jesus came to take our place. And if we hear that voice, if we hear that truth, then we truly are his. Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, has come to take away our sins. And if you hear that this morning and you have not received that, then that still holds true for you today. If you repent and believe on him. So I pray this morning, on, on, in one sense, for those of you this morning who have not done that. Who have not given your life to the Lord because he's given his life for you. I pray that you will do that this morning. And for the rest of us, I want to look a little bit more about this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And then bring some application to this. Again, where is the kingdom of Jesus? If he's called king, where is it? Again, I, I spent some time saying it's not of this realm. It's not of this world. So where is it? Isn't Jesus king right now? We proclaim him a king. A king. Where is his kingdom? Well, turn with me to the gospel of Luke. And I want to show you verse 20 and 21. Luke 17. 20 and 21. Let's read this. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So they're looking for this kingdom of God. He answers them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or look here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the kingdom of God is here now in one sense. In a moment, I'll show you how we're still waiting for the full consummation of it. But right now, the kingdom of God is in the spiritual life of lives of his people, of you and me that are believers. Jesus ruled and reigns what our lives, our hearts. So that's the kingdom of God. Now, we are now in one sense living in the kingdom of God spiritually. But. Again, in a few moments, I'll show you, we're still waiting for it. I want to show you something else. Look, go to uh, Revelation chapter 1. Here's another example where we are told, and this time by the Apostle John, that the kingdom of God is now. I, I love this chapter. Revelation 1, look at verses 4 through 6. 
as John is writing to the seven churches of Asia, to believers, first century, or probably second century, to, depending on, that's the first century, I'm sorry. First century, look at what he says, starting in verse 4. So John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, giving him a hand. Hey, he is a king now. He's ruling everybody. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by the blood. And this is the main point. And look, and he has made us a what? Kingdom. We're a kingdom now. He's telling the first century church, you're a kingdom now. A kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, the kingdom of God is now. We do live in one sense in the kingdom of God because he rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. And so, again, that's why it's not of this realm. It's not of this world. It's totally different, Pilate, than what you're thinking and anybody else is thinking. So let us not forget that, that Jesus, we call him Lord, do we not? We call him King. He's Lord and King of our lives, of our hearts, of those people who hear his voice. But yet we're still waiting for the full consummation, right? This isn't everything that is expected. There's something greater coming. And that's the promise to each and every believer. When God's at his second coming, we will have the full consummation of the kingdom of God. So staying in the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 11. And let's look at verses 15 through 19, where John's vision here records for us the second coming. And this is what we're all waiting for. John 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So you see that the kingdom of the world, which we're living now, is that is in some point in the future going to come the absolute kingdom of our Lord. And verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. God's kingdom is now going to reign fully. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great and destroy those. Excuse me, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So, again, God's final judgment is finally coming. On those who do evil and God's reward is coming to all the saints and prophets. That includes you and me as saints of the Lord. And look at verse 19. And the temple of God, which, in he- which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstorm. This is the second coming of our Lord. This is the final consummation of his kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign forever and ever, right? That's what it says in verse 17, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
So in one sense, the kingdom of God is now. It's ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people, right? And he's temporarily given over this world, in a sense, to let evil run its full course. And we exist side by side with it. And so that's why we see horrific things happen in our world. But guess what? We look forward to one day, that one day when Christ will return and finally consummate his kingdom. And we will experience it literally. Where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease. All sin will be eradicated. That's the day that we look forward to. And until that day comes, then the question is, how then shall we live in this fallen world? How then shall we allow Christ to be king of our hearts? And for that, I want to close looking at one last section of Scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Here it's talking about the kingdom of God coming, giving hope to the believer. So Hebrews 12, starting in verse 28, says this. He says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, so it's that future kingdom. We're going to receive a kingdom that cannot be eradicated, cannot be shaken. And it's like, therefore, since this is going to happen, the writer of Hebrews tells us how we shall live. Let us show gratitude. Why? Because we're going to inherit a kingdom that's never going to be shaken again. Right. All the evil that we see is going to be gone. All the disease that we see is going to be gone. All the sin is going to be gone. Every wrong will be corrected. I was going to say righted, but I don't think that's a real word. It's going to be corrected. Right. How shall we live as we look forward to that day? It says this. Let us show gratitude. By which we may offer God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So point one of our application, how then shall we live as believers? Be grateful towards God for our future. Understand that we live in a fallen world and evil is going to run its full course. But we who are the kingdom of God now and look forward to the future kingdom of God should be grateful towards God that we are. We're in his kingdom and we have something to look forward to. You know, I don't know if you listened to any of those interviews or the things that were happening at that church. But their faith just came through so strong because they have something to look forward to. The pastor who lost his daughter knows he's going to see her again. That's not true for a non-believer. They will not see their family again. They will be consumed by our God who is a consuming fire in a place of eternal torment. But that is not true for us. I pray that you hold on to that truth. Even in the midst of great tragedy, we can be grateful towards our God. The writer of Hebrews doesn't stop. We're actually going to point out ten things since I have the time to do it. He says this as he continues on of how we should live. He says, let love of the brethren continue. Now again, he's writing to a church. How then shall we live in light of all this? Each and every one of us should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's how we glorify God in his kingdom. If you're a citizen of God's kingdom, show gratitude towards God. And secondly, love your brothers and sisters. Love those of us around you, even if we're unlovable, which we are at times, aren't we? 
Love one another. How many times does it say that in Scripture to love your brother and sister? How can you say you love God and not love your brother who you see every day? So how shall we live? Be grateful towards God. Love your brothers and sisters. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The third thing that we need to do is to be hospitable. Believers in Christ should be hospitable towards strangers. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. We're told that we should live and be sympathetic towards one another. Sympathetic to those in prison, those who are ill-treated, those who are suffering. That's what we're called to do. Be grateful. Love your brothers and sisters. Be hospitable. Be sympathetic. In verse 4, marriage marriage is to be held honorable among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God is saying that believers are to be sexually pure. We are to honor the institution of marriage that God has created for us. God is the one who created marriage, and he's the one who says what marriage should be. And obviously in our culture is perverting that. We don't believe what the culture says. This isn't our kingdom, and we shouldn't be surprised how perverted our culture is. They're being non-believers. You and me were that way as well at one time. It is not our goal to get into the government and, and change all the laws. This is not our kingdom. We're to glorify God. Do what we can. Show them what it is to glorify God. And if we could do that, great. But the main focus of the church isn't to be a political entity. This is not our home. This is not our world. And this world will probably never, you know, be fully, fully godly world. But I just don't believe that. I, I, I'm, of the more, I'm probably more pessimistic and think the world is going to get worse before it gets better if it does. And so we live by God's laws. God says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And marriage means marriage by the way God defined it. Verses 5 and 6. The, the sixth thing that he calls the believers to be in light of the kingdom that is to come. Says this. Excuse me, verse 5. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he him himself has said, I will never desert you nor Will I ever forsake you so that we confidently say the Lord is my helper? I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The next thing, the next way that we should live as believers is this to be satisfied. We should be satisfied with what the Lord has given us. We should not put our trust in money or anything else. There's nothing wrong with having money at all. But look what it says. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Right? We should be satisfied with where the Lord has put us. We should be satisfied to trust in the Lord to provide for us and nothing else. Be free from the love of money. Number seven. Look at verse seven. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. The next, way that, the next way that the believers are called to live 
is to imitate the faith of your spiritual mentors. Maybe you can think back on somebody who was your mentor, who really, who really kind of uh, really built into your life. And sometimes it's sad to say, right, if we think of that person, maybe they have fallen away. So we're not to imitate that person's faith, obviously. The writer of Hebrews is, is suggesting that it's obviously a positive faith. But I think we would do well to imitate spiritual mentors of ours who led us in the right way, to imitate their faith. That's something that we are called to do. And even if you're young in the faith, think of somebody who you look up to who's maybe your spiritual mentor and imitate their faith. Which reminds us, those of us who are building into other people, people are looking to us as their mentors, we should guard our lives. It's not just about my own personal faith and I have the freedom to live and and do what I want. No, people are watching us. Sometimes we're the only Bible that people read. I'm sure you've heard that before. And you're the only example of believer in their life. What's your witness like towards towards those people? The greatest impact are those of us who are parents, right? Our kids could tell this church, and I, I don't want my kids to come up here, what our faith is really like. They'll tell you I'm not perfect. But hopefully I'm being a witness to my children about what love is. All these things. Loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Loving the Lord. Making the Lord the priority in our lives. Showing them what's important in life. Because maybe for them, that's all they see right now until they get out into the world. And what are you showing them? Are you showing them something totally different? That church isn't important? That bitterness, you can hold bitterness in your heart? That you could talk bad about your brothers and sisters? I don't know. Again, all of it's different. We have to be careful of what we, those of us who are building into other people's lives, watch how we live as well. Verse 9. Look at verse 9 now. Let's skip down to verse 9. Do not be carried away by various, excuse me, by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by food, through, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited what is he talking about here well just quite simply i think the command here is for the for us to grow in our spiritual knowledge until the kingdom of god comes we're called to continually grow as a matter of fact somebody at my work this week asked me why do you keep going to church like didn't you i mean how much can you learn about god right don't sometimes people say right i mean how many times can you like read the bible you know didn't you read it already didn't you have it all and, and I told him, because his son's in sports, I go, well, think about your son in, in, in football practice. Why does he need to keep going to practice? Doesn't he know how to play? It's to grow to get better, right? And in, in, in football, you keep going to get better, to learn more. And I said, same thing with our Christian life. We go to grow stronger in our faith, to learn more, to continue to grow. And I think that's what he's saying here, grow in our spiritual knowledge. We can never attain, you know, fully grasp who God is. And it's good for us to be here in church, to grow in fellowship. That's what we're called to do. Uh, number nine is found in verse 15. Skip down to verse 15. So this thought is continued. We're still talking about how to live in light of the kingdom. This, the author of Hebrews is carrying this thought on. He says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lip, the fruit of lips that give thanks to to his name. So we're called to continually to offer sacrifice of praise. We're continue to worship God. When we come in here to sing, it's not just to be entertained. 
we're actually joining in. And Izzy's great to remind us that we're, we're joining in with the rest of the church worldwide to praise God. That's what it's about. We're offering our praises to God for what he has done for us and who he is. And then the last one. Does that come up yet? Yeah, no, uh, number 10. Can you put it number 10? This is my favorite. You'll see in a minute. It's a joke. But Verse 17. Obey your leaders. Thank you for the laugh, the charitable laugh. I appreciate it. <laughs> obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So the last one, as we wait for the kingdom of God, is obey and submit to your church leaders. That's what he's talking about. As you can see why I said this is my favorite, because I just want you all to submit to me. No. It's actually kind of scary if you continue to read on. Look at, let's read it again. So obey, so the church's part, you, if you call this your church, and I'm your pastor, and, and John and, and David are also your pastors, it says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. So that's your part, right? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. This is one reason why I always said before I was a pastor, I would never want to be a pastor. So it's, it's you know, watch what you say. My mom used to always say, don't say that, you know, that's what's going to happen. It did. Because the pastors, I don't know how this is going to happen, but it's scary. I'm going to give an account for the souls at my church. You know, that I did my job as a pastor. And that's that's heavy. Right? Well, if you don't know, it is. It is heavy. But you're to obey your leaders and submit to them. And look at verse, uh, continue on to verse 17. As ones who give account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That, that's your part. You are to submit to your leaders, your pastors, in a way that brings them joy and not grief. You're like, well, what are you talking about? Well, think of the grief that you can give your leaders. Now, there's, there's times, let me just say this, there's times to complain about things, right? When something really bad is, growing, is going on, but do you complain just to complain about things and bring grief to your pastor? You know, let it be easy for us to rule over you in such a way that brings honor and glory to God. There's so much that can be said about that. But I, I just want to leave it at that. I, believe me, I, I lead with joy and with grief sometimes. If you've been with our church for a long time, you know, even you, some of you have suffered grief in this church. That's part of life. But think about it. Are you part of that grief or do you bring joy to, to your leaders? I just want you guys to think about that as you're living your life out in this church. And there's no doubt that, hey, sometimes grief is needed, you know. But be careful in doing that for your sake, right? He even says it for this would be unprofitable for you. Somehow you as, as church members are held accountable for the way that you submit or not submit to your leadership in the church. And that's between you and God. Right? But he does say it would be unprofitable for you if you, if you bring them grief that's unjustified. Right? We all want to live in peace and harmony. And believe me, I want joy in our church. And it is a joy to lead. Otherwise, I would probably not do it. I would try to get out of it. But I know that being a pastor also brings grief. 
you know, you know, especially when there's division within the church. When people want to leave and they're coming to us and telling us, hey, we want to leave or this there's this problem and that problem. And it's just like, oh, it's so tough because we've built in the lives and there's people that we love and they disagree for whatever reason and they want to leave. And, and that's that grieves us because some of it's unjustified. Some of it's over minor little things. And we try to encourage them to, you know, is that really a need to bring division within the church? I don't know. That's going to be, again, for them and God and for us and God. And, and, and I think if you do have something, just let me issue this morning, if you do have something against a leader in the church, Scripture is very clear on how you bring that to the church, right? It says if you have something against an elder, which I am, then bring a, a witness or two and confront them. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with confronting your leadership in the church if it's the right reason to do it. So again, these are all ways that we are to live for God until he comes so that we bring honor and glory to him and we're an example to the rest of the world while we live in this kingdom of God in a sense spiritually and we look forward to the kingdom of God to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that your kingdom is not of this world. And that our only hope is not in this world, but our hope is in the kingdom to come. In a kingdom that will not be shaken. In a kingdom that will last forever. In a kingdom where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more sin or sickness. For sin will finally be defeated. For the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to be released again. And your children will rule and reign with you for all eternity. We look forward to that day. And Lord God, until that day comes, may we live in such a way that honors and glorifies you. May we live peaceably amongst one another. May we learn to love one another. May we be a witness to the rest of this world as well. And Lord God, I'm so thankful that when we fail when we sin against our brothers and sisters, and more importantly, when we sin against you, that you forgive us. For we are not perfect. We are sinful people saved by the grace of God. So we ask that you would help us to live for you in this world, that we would remember that this world is not our home, but we look forward to the kingdom that's coming. And when tragedy strikes, as it will, in our lives that we will remember that this is not our home this is part of life and we will prepare ourselves for those times Lord God and that we might glorify you in the midst of tragedy and Lord God I pray for our brothers and sisters in Texas who've lost so much that you would comfort them that you would strengthen their faith and that their faith would be a witness to the rest of this world of your love for your people. We thank you for this time, Lord God. Again, help us to glorify you. And let us begin by worshiping you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.